Welcome to our monthly TMIT Global High Performer Webinar and Podcaster Series. I'm Dr. Charles Denham, Chairman of TMIT, and I'll be your host for the program. This series of more than 200 monthly 90-minute free programs provided for the global healthcare and higher education communities provides continuing education documentation through Care University, our learning management system. This is our 206th program and is entitled The Imposters, Emerging Threats to Safety. We'll address expert impersonation, commercial academic fraud, publication fraud, and predatory business practice. We'll seek to identify how we can keep our constituencies safe through the four A's, awareness, accountability, ability, and action. Major motion pictures, comedy spoofs of imposters, real sensational stories of caregiver impersonation by teens, and a national nursing diploma scandal with potentially thousands of imposter caregivers are very sobering. Welcome to Miami Mutual Bank. How may I help you? I'd like to cash this check here and then and I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. <laughs> Are you a real life pilot? I sure am, little lady. The jump seat is open. It's been a while since I've done this. Which one's the jump seat again? Dr. Connors to the ER. Dr. Connors to the ER. This is irrefutable evidence that the defendant is lying. Special Agent Hanratty, FBI. Hello, Carl. You're gonna get caught. It's like Vegas. The house always wins. Some nuts flying around the country posing as a pilot. Call him the James Bond of the sky. Hello, pusher. This is by far the best date I have ever been on. He's a kid. That's why he doesn't have a record. 30 milligrams of codeine every four hours. Do you concur? I concur. Dr. Harris. Yes? Do you concur? Concur with what, sir? <laughs> Ma'am, I'm sorry to have to tell you, your son has fought you checks. I have a payroll check here I'd like to cash. I'm working part-time at the church now. Just tell me how much yours and I'll pay you back. $1.3 million. I'll be choosing eight young ladies to be a part of Pan Am's future stewardess program. South America, Australia, Singapore. These are so perfect, the bank doesn't even know the difference. What do you want? To apologize. You didn't call to apologize, did you? You have no one else to call. I'm looking for your son. I would never give up my son. If you were a father, you'd know. Stop chasing me. I can't stop. It's my job. You see these people staring at you? They keep peeking over their shoulders, wondering where you're going tonight. Where are you going, Frank? Don't tell me not to fly. I've simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Don't bring around a cloud of terrain on my parade. Sir, we're gonna let him get away. Oh, Carl, you let him get away. Nobody had a better brain on my Merry Christmas! Parade. I'm getting close, huh? You will go to prison. You're gonna have to catch me. Today, we will be removing the patient's appendix. The first step in an operation of this particular type is...
to shave the patient. Ah, forget it, forget it, get on with it. We don't... We'll skip the shave and go directly to the operation. The second step in an operation of this type is... Anesthetic. But can't you tell he's already been given the required injection of pentothal? Of course. He's already been given the required in injections. Mm -hmm. All right. Let us begin the operation. Thank you, doctor. And now the first incision. Doctor, isn't that incision a bit high for an appendix? Do you want to do the operation? Fine, you come on up here and you do it. In-house. He was cutting into his chest. Did you see me cut into his chest? Did I cut his chest? I was probing to determine muscle tone and skeletal girth. It's a new technique. We mock what we don't understand. Yeah. Go ahead, will you? I'm getting hungry. And now, the first incision. And now, I will incise. Cut the sucker. This man is dead. Now, with a 23-year-old charged with impersonating a doctor at a children's hospital, the young man accused of slipping past security multiple times, even offering a patient advice. ABC's Will Carr is at that children's hospital in Orange County with the latest. Good morning, Will. And good morning, Amy. Authorities say that 23-year-old came to this children's hospital not once, not twice, but seven times pretending to be a doctor. And now this morning, he's facing some serious charges. This morning, parents outraged after authorities say this man snuck into a children's hospital and pretended to be a doctor at least seven times. That's just mind blowing. I can't even, I can't even fathom what ramifications could come of something like that. 23-year-old Aria Kuzian allegedly wore a doctor's jacket and a stethoscope. Prosecutors say he fooled security at the Children's Hospital of Orange County by telling them he lost his medical ID. He then proceeded to walk the halls impersonating a physician, even gaining access to restricted floors. He was trying to get into the mental health unit. Any idea why he was doing that? 
We are all out of guess as to why he was doing that to the extent that we're still investigating. Authorities say Akuzian also allegedly diagnosed a patient with a growth on his neck at UC Irvine Medical Center. The school tells ABC News Akuzian, a former undergrad student who told people on campus he was a doctor, was never part of the medical school. Why Akuzian impersonated a doctor remains a mystery, but if it sounds familiar, that's because it's not the first time something like this has happened. In 2011, 17-year-old Matthew Scheid was sentenced to a year behind bars after masquerading as a physician's assistant for a month. He even performed CPR on a patient and used medical lingo he learned from shows like Grey's Anatomy. I'd probably put out a word or two to make it sound like I knew what I was talking about, even though I had no idea. This is the New Birthing Life Medical Center. And in 2016, authorities arrested Malachi Love Robinson, an 18-year-old who went by the nickname Dr. Love and charged him with fraud for practicing medicine without a license. When we pressured Robinson about his story, he walked out. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut this, in, this interview short. I'm going to have to cut this in, interview short. As for the suspect in this case, he faces up to 11 years behind bars if convicted. And while the hospital here does not believe that he interacted with any kids, authorities say they can't be so sure. So they're asking for anybody who had any interaction with him here at the hospital to come forward and share their story. Amy. All right, Will Carr, thanks so much. A lab coat and a stethoscope. Yeah. That's all it took. The fact wow. that he diagnosed a patient as well, Pretty very wild. alarming. Chris, according to the Justice Department, more than 7,600 people paid $15,000 a piece. They got a nursing degree. Some of them got jobs in health care, all without spending a single second in the classroom or clinical labs. From the moment we're born to when we pass away, nurses are there every step of the way caring for patients. They need to know that that, that nurse that's with them and their family is going to give them safe, compassionate, and ethical care. Dr. Brenda Haig is the director of FGCU School of Nursing. She told me she was shocked when she learned about three nursing schools in Florida that gave away fake diplomas to whoever was willing to pay. I can't speculate as to you know how or why people would choose to do that instead of actually enrolling in a program, investing the time and energy to be successful and knowing that you're competent. At FGCU, nursing students go through a four-year degree program. They spend hours in the classroom and in clinical training. The school has the state's highest pass rate on the certification exam. But a few hours to our east, the Justice Department says students at Siena College and Sacred Heart International Institute out of Broward County and the Palm Beach School of Nursing. These people didn't go through that. That part was completely skipped by getting the fake diplomas. 25 people have been charged with running the scheme. State licensing boards in Florida, New York, New Jersey, and Texas are looking into their records to find any fraudulent nurses, all in an attempt to show patients they will be safe in a nurse's hands. And that's our goal is to provide safe, competent practitioners to take care of the people in Southwest Florida. As a reminder, whether you're watching this program live or later on demand or listening to it as a podcast, we want to remind you to go to www safetyleaders.org to download the slides and take advantage of posted resources. We're delighted to have our speakers and reactors of our Workplace Violence and Fraud series joining us, whose bios you may review on our website. You know, before we get started, we always want to have the voice of the patient or voice of the community, and we've asked Jennifer Dingman to provide that voice. She's a national speaker, winner of the Global Pete Conrad Patient Safety Award, and a contributor to a number of articles 
and programs that have saved lives. Thank you, Dr. Denham, for your kind and generous introduction. This is a very interesting webinar today. It's all about imposters in healthcare. These people are very dangerous and unfortunately able to get their degrees online and fake their way into hospitals and other practices. Very anxious to hear what our speakers are going to say about this and this is so important. Thank you all for being here. And please share the recording with your friends, family members and colleagues. Thank you for your words, Jennifer, and thank you for your steadfast support of our program. You know, we've covered a framework and a list of fraud issues in our October 2021 High Performer webinar. We recommend you take advantage of it. We've continued to expand this work with our focus on fraud and expert impersonation, commercial academic services, publications, and predatory business practices. This fraud-centered program builds on our five programs on workplace violence, which you can view or listen to on our website or through our podcasts. The issues of insider threats are truly challenging as they continue to emerge and have been lurking under the waterline. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, TMIT Global was founded in the mid-1980s as a medical research education organization. Through our founding work and development of quality and patient safety best practices, and healthcare performance improvement, we've grown to a network of more than 3,100 organizations in 3,000 communities and 500 subject matter experts. Since 2015, we focused on failure to rescue in many areas, including bystander rescue care. Please take advantage of our programs and articles. In recent years, our focus has included schools K through 12 and institutions of higher education. During the COVID pandemic, we provided training to essential critical workers and major medical centers and universities through 30 monthly webinars and on-demand video programs. Our social media addresses are provided on the slide we have on the screen through which we intend to build our network in the years ahead. Our purpose, we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. Our mission, to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve and ventures we undertake. Our I care core values, which we try to live every day, are integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. As for our financial disclosures, none of our speakers have anything to disclose. As for funding of this TMIT Global High Performer Webinar Series since its launch more than 15 years ago, it has been entirely funded by private family philanthropy. No direct, indirect, or affiliated financial support has ever been or ever will be provided by healthcare pharmaceutical or device companies. Our focus on emerging threats began with the launch of a community of practice for leaders who were being kept up at night from a growing stream of threats challenging them, both visible and invisible. Through a group of terrific global leaders, we identified 30 threats that needed immediate attention. For those listening to our podcast, we're showing a graphic depicting both inside and outside threats. Our goal is to increase the safety zone for both, knowing that we can never totally eliminate them. The Joint Commission, which accredits hospitals, recently expanded the definition of workplace violence. This definition is entirely fitting for schools and institutions of higher education. Our series on workplace violence, fraud, and insider threats is at the intersection of some very serious threats to all organizations. Our enemy is failure to rescue, and our battle is against the clock. 
Research has shown that the bad guys who intend to do great harm to the public do a lot of research on the web. If you wish to join our community of practice for more granular detail, you may apply on our website at this webinar page. Now for our program. When we build the course for a new topic, we go through the process of what we call head, heart, hands, and voice. Head, what do we want you to know? The evidence-based fact set. Heart, what do we want you to feel? Because emotion drives action. Hands, what do we want you to do? And voice, what do we want you to share with your family, team, and colleagues after the program? As performance systems engineering people, we use frameworks. We use the five R's of safety to drive improvement, readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience as a learning cycle, knowing that we must constantly improve. We will use this approach the deeper we get into our programs in the days ahead. Imposters, be they individuals or organizations, have enormous impact through the threats we've identified in our community of practice. The imposters are more than caregiver and academic impersonators. There are global corporations perpetrating imposter fraud, predatory journals and corrupted scientific articles and publications, and many, but not all of our healthcare organizations, insurance companies, and academic organizations maintain predatory business practices under the waterline. Again, we favor memorable structures and have used the 4A model to introduce new content, awareness, accountability, ability, and action. In our first programs, we will not attain all of our learning objectives. However, we want to keep them in mind as we build multi-program series. Awareness. Participants will learn about the range of imposter threats from individuals and organizations fraudulently posing as legitimate contributors to healthcare and higher education. Accountability. Participants will learn who may be personally accountable for recognizing and reducing the threats from imposters. Ability. Participants will learn about specific concepts, tools, and resources they can apply to reduce the vulnerability of those who serve and those they serve from imposters. Action. Participants will learn line-of-sight actions locally to reduce the harm from the imposter threats to faculty, caregivers, staff, students, and their families from insider and outsider threats. So let's first focus on expert impersonation. The following series of videos, both of motion picture characterizations and news stories are very sobering. Do you understand how dangerous this is, do you? Don't stand there crying, just nod your head and tell me you won't do it again. Now dry up and get back to work. You okay? He told me to pick up the blood, so I did. But he never told me to lay with. Hey, it's okay. Stop crying. What's your name? Brenda. Brenda. Brenda, I wouldn't worry about it. You know, these doctors, you know, they don't know everything. It's my first week. I think they're going to fire me. No. No, nobody's going to fire you. I bet you're good at your job. No, I'm not. Yeah, I bet if I asked you to check on the status of my friend Lance Applebaum, that you could do that for me in a second. Nurse Fitzsimmons to recovery. Nurse Fitzsimmons to recovery. Mm -hmm. 
Mr. Applebaum fractured his ankle. Dr. Ashland is treating him in exam room seven. You see that? No problem. This is the emergency chart. See that blue star there? That means that the patient has been diagnosed. And then after he's been treated, we put a red circle here. See? I like those braces. I guess they're all right. I got mine off last year. Boy, I hated them. They were bottoms. No, I still gotta wear my mouth guard. You have really nice teeth. Thank you. <laughs> you have a pretty smile. <laughs> no, I mean it. I really think those braces look good on you. Thank you. Welcome. Brenda. Yeah. Do you know if they're hiring here at the hospital? I'm not sure. What do you want to do? I'm a doctor. Dear Dad, I've decided to get off the road for a while. I've taken a night job at a hospital and met some really nice people. It feels good to have my feet on the ground, to wake up in the same bed every night. Who knows? Maybe I'll even find someone to settle down with. Harvard Medical School? Top of your class? Southern California Children's Hospital. Well, that's a pretty impressive resume, Dr. Connors. Well, unfortunately, uh, the only thing I need is a, an emergency room supervisor for my midnight to 8 a.m. shift. Uh, someone to babysit six interns and 20 nurses. <laughs> but, um, well, I doubt that uh, you'd be interested in that. In the past, they've always let me choose my own nurses. Dr. Connolly? Dr. Harris? Present. Dr. Ashland? Dr. Connolly. You gonna take role every night? Uh, yes, I will, Dr. Ashland. And if you're gonna be late, I suggest you bring a note. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Bassman. Miss Mace. Miss Strong. Nurse Brown. Nurse Sanford. 30 milligrams of codeine every four hours. Run the class with 60 drops a minute until we calculate the fluid requirements. What do you estimate the degree and extent of the burns, Gilbert? Second and third degree burns over about 20% of the body surface. Do you concur? I concur. Let's get him out to pediatrics. Oh, in here, Dr. Connors. <laughs> Gentlemen, what, uh, what seems to be the problem? Bicycle accident, fractured tibia about five inches below patella. <clears throat> Dr. Harris. Yes? Do you concur? Concur with what, sir? With what Dr. Ashland just said, do you, do you concur? Oh, uh, well, there was a bicycle accident. Um, the boy told us. So you concur? 
Okay. I think we should take an x-ray, then stitch him out and put him in a walking cast. <laughs> Very good, Dr. Ashton. Very good. Well, you don't seem to have much need for me. Carry on. Blew it, didn't I? Why didn't I concur? Malachi Love Robinson, the teen, marched out of his Florida clinic in handcuffs. Malachi, they say you've been practicing medicine without a license. Sitting down with ABC News overnight, released from jail early Wednesday morning on a $21,000 bail after being busted in a sting operation in West Palm Beach, caught allegedly giving a medical exam to an undercover officer. Are you a doctor of anything? Anything at all? I do currently hold um, a PhD um, in what I don't feel comfortable disclosing uh, because that is not the issue here. Um, but you the treat issue people that at your I office face now well, is accusations. The 18-year-old indeed facing serious accusations from police. Seven, including grand theft and allegedly practicing medicine without a license. And last month, he proudly showed off his medical center to our affiliate WPFB. This is the New Birthing Life Medical Center. But peel back the tape and the sign on the door has his name and these two crucial letters, MD. That sign on the door was actually due to be changed. There are many types of degrees out there that hold a title as doctor, whether they are a physicist or an engineer. Just because someone has a title doctor in front of their name does not necessarily imply MD. Have you had training? I have. I have shadowed many doctors. You're saying your training comprises shadowing other doctors, real doctors. That's your training in medicine. Your training comprises of a lot of things. But you weren't in med school. Exactly. So I am not, I am not portraying as, as an MD. I've okay, never said you... that I've gone to school to be a MD. But the teen who goes by Dr. Love does advertise an array of treatments on his medical center website, including phototherapy, food and air therapy, and naturopathy. I have been studying this particular field for a while. Um, may not have been eight years, nine years, ten years, but it has been long enough to, I would say, justify um, what I do. Including apparently treating the elderly. In a criminal complaint, an 86-year-old woman said he recently treated her for severe stomach pain, paying him nearly $3,500. What services did you provide in exchange for that money? I can tell you this, accusations are merely accusations and services you'd have to define that. Um, whether she paid for me to just show up, that's up to her. You're not denying the fact that she paid you $3,500 or so, correct? No, I am denying that. Are you a fraud? Because it seems like everything you're saying to me is either evasive or an outright lie. I don't appreciate your tone. I don't appreciate the way you're portraying this interview to actually be. And then a moment we didn't expect. Are you in big trouble? I mean, it seems like you've spoken to a lawyer who's prepared you for to talk not only to the media, but the police as well. I don't know where you're seeing this information from, but it is inaccurate. Um, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut this in this interview short. I'm going to have to cut this in interview short. And in fact, he did walking out the door.
Now, we have a standing offer to Malachi to finish that interview. The teen has not yet been arraigned, but insisted throughout the interview he has done nothing wrong. He has also said that when all this clears up, he intends to open another clinic. This man arrested. He's accused of being a fake doctor. 36-year-old Carlos Hernandez Fernandez is facing serious charges after several women are coming forward saying he botched their plastic surgery procedure. And the charges against him also allege he was sexually inappropriate with two of the four women in this case. Denver 7's Mark Boyle is live outside the clinic on South Federal near Alameda. Mark, he hasn't been in business for several weeks. That's right, not since August 8th when he was arrested. The clinic doors are closed here, and neighbors say this parking lot was full. It's now chained up. They say it was full of patients coming to get plastic surgery procedures from this man that told them that he was a doctor. One problem, we didn't find any record that he even was a doctor or could perform these procedures. Now a lot of patients speaking exclusively to Denver 7 say they have infections because of his work. This is 36-year-old Carlos Hernandez Fernandez. He's been running this plastic surgery clinic off of Federal Boulevard and is accused of botching procedures. So he, you know, stapled her, sewed, and just did all kinds of different things on the same area because he, the explanation was she was allergic. That was his explanation. This is a former patient who didn't want to be identified, but gave us these photos saying Hernandez Fernandez tried to fix a simple skin problem with an implant that didn't work and tried to close up a wound with staples and later stitches, paying him over $2,000. She said she's scared because she, you know, of all this that she's learning and she doesn't know if the stuff that he used, you know, was even clean. She still has the problem. Hernandez Fernandez now has 15 counts against him, including second degree assault, unlawful sexual contact, and unauthorized practice of a physician. State records show his surgical assistant license was suspended the day of his arrest when authorities walked in on him performing an invasive surgical procedure. After court, he didn't want to talk to us. Sir, can you tell us what you have to say to the four victims in this case? The judge ordered him to wear a GPS monitor and turn over his passport. Uh, the victims tell us that uh, he told them he worked at Denver Health a couple times a week. We called Denver Health. They say that he's never been an employee there. In the U.S. tonight and in California, prosecutors accusing a California man of practicing medicine for years, even though they say he was not a doctor. They say he treated everything from viral infections to cancer. Tonight, he's now facing multiple felonies. Our chief national correspondent, Matt Gutman, in California tonight. For years, authorities say Stefan Gavorkian practiced medicine on thousands of patients, doing blood tests and treating everything from viral infections to cancer in his North Hollywood office. Pathways Medical promoting its anti-aging therapy and vitamin infusions on Instagram. The team posing with celebrities like actor Andy Garcia and retired boxer Layla Ali, daughter of Muhammad Ali. This is Layla Ali. I'm a Pathways Medical. Got my IVs, so I'm feeling good. But the Los Angeles District Attorney says Gavorkian had no medical license. Tonight, he is facing five felony counts of impersonating a doctor. I can't believe it that this man wasn't a real uh, doctor. Who does this? Prosecutors building their case since November when an undercover investigator posed as a patient at an appointment where Gavorkian allegedly failed to accurately address abnormal levels of a hormone that could indicate a serious medical condition.
Tonight, Gavorkian's attorney says his client looks forward to vigorously defending himself against these allegations. David, it's not clear how Gavorkian got on authorities' radar. We know that after his arraignment, he was released on condition that he not practice medicine. And tonight, the DA is asking for any possible victims to come forward. A Clifton man pleads guilty to impersonating a nurse for nearly four years. Investigators say 28-year-old Martez Morris stole the identity of a real nurse to create fake documents and get hired as a licensed nurse. He worked at a couple of home health agencies in our area. Investigators say Morris cared for several children and an adult with disabilities. In one case, he gave breathing treatments to a toddler, administered medicine, and cleaned the child's feeding tube. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost Health Care Fraud Section prosecuted this case. Morris is expected to be sentenced in December. A Cleveland woman has been arrested, accused of impersonating a nurse and trying to discharge two elderly patients from Erlanger. 28-year-old Lydia Brock is facing multiple charges. It all happened Sunday evening at the Erlanger facility on East 3rd Street. Officials say Brock was admitted to the hospital for a possible esophagus tear. While there, she went into two elderly patients' rooms and, claiming to be their evening nurse, tried to discharge them. When security staff removed Brock from the hospital, they say they found an Erlanger badge, unidentified pills and syringes, and empty prescription bottles. Anderson, a woman, pleads guilty this week for impersonating a nurse at DeVita Marshall Dialysis Center. 31-year-old Stephanie Garcia used false documents reportedly to get a job. She was hired by DeVita in May of 2016, where she used someone else's license to work as a nurse. She's being charged with one count of fraudulent use of identifying information and two counts of nursing without a license. A scandal in scrubs. The chief motivation for this type of crime is almost always greed. The feds say that thousands of nurses may be working near you with a fake nursing diploma. And in a shade room exclusive, we found out that black students may be the main targets. It's definitely disproportionately impacting minority communities. I'm Justin Carter, this is TSR Investigates. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Miami calls it Operation Nightingale. Back in January, over two dozen people were arrested linked to a network of once accredited schools that are now accused of selling fake transcripts and diplomas to aspiring nurses. Of the 7,600 people who allegedly purchased these fake transcripts and diplomas, a third of them actually passed the board exams, which cleared the way for them to qualify to get their license in their specific state and get to work. And when we started to dig a little bit, we started to connect the dots and realized many people behind the scheme have something in common. The diplomas may look legitimate, but they're not. At about $15,000 per diploma, we're looking around at $114 million paid for these documents. And now states are going after hundreds of nurses nationwide, encouraging them to either surrender their licenses or face the possibility of getting them revoked. At the center of this federal investigation are three former nursing schools, Siena College and the Sacred Heart International Institute, both in Broward County, Florida, and the Palm Beach School of Nursing in Palm Beach, Florida, all of which have been closed. Knowing that the candidates would use those false documents 
to one, sit for nursing board examinations, secure nursing uh, licenses, and three, ultimately obtain nursing jobs in medical facilities. We found this YouTube video of Johanna Napoleon from years ago promoting her nursing school. She's Haitian and the mastermind behind Palm Beach School of Nursing, who, according to court paperwork, owned and operated with four other subsidiary nursing programs in Florida. Court documents show that she, with help from 14 other staffers and nurse recruiters, created and distributed fake diplomas and transcripts for aspiring RN and LPN candidates. Investigators say they found emails that she sent to other nurse education programs containing blank templates of nurse diplomas and transcripts. Valer Dorisseau is one of them. He was also named in the complaint as owner of the Center for Advanced Training Studies in New Jersey. He's also from Haiti and is accused of wiring $30,000 to Napoleon in exchange for fake nursing diplomas and transcripts. Not only is this a public safety issue, but it also tarnishes the reputation of nurses who actually did the hard clinical and coursework required to get licenses and jobs. Another suspect that caught our eye is businessman Stanton Witherspoon, the CEO of a popular media company in Liberia. He was part owner of Siena College, where court documents reveal that he and his co-conspirators, quote, solicited and recruited people seeking nursing credentials and employment as an RN or LPN and sent and caused others to send via wire communications information used to create false and fraudulent transcripts and diplomas from Siena College. The chief motivation for this type of crime is almost always greed. The list goes on. This woman, Vorce Thompson, was owner and operator of Unity Healthcare Training and Employment in Union County, New Jersey. The website is still active. Investigators found emails through Interstate Wire of Thompson, quote, requesting to get a transcript edited prior to sending it to the Florida Board of Education. Please leave your message for five, six, one. The Shade Room reached out to several defendants about these allegations. None of them responded. But we did sit down with Jordan Fensterman, who's representing 12 nurses in New York. They recently received letters from the Office of Professions. They demanded that they give up their license unless and until they can prove that they attained all of their credits from schools other than one of the six schools. He says that the catch is his clients did complete the necessary coursework and the required clinicals. He says that these were once accredited schools that got caught committing crimes with other nurses that are not his clients. Did they move forward knowing that, um, yes, I'm going to get this degree anyway, but I didn't do the clinical work? I, I don't think that's the case at all. New York State had approved the program is the point. So they, they paid for these schools that were New York State approved schools. And now it seems like the government's looking back and saying, wait a second, you, you should have known, but why, why, didn't, why didn't the education department know and not approve the school? He says most of the nurses that he represents are immigrants where English is their second language. He believes that many of the nurses wrapped up in this investigation were targeted because the people running these schools were of the same nationality. It's definitely disproportionately impacting minority communities. Have your clients been fired? I have not yet had a client that's told me they've been fired. My clients have not given up their RN licenses. They haven't sent back their RN licenses uh, because they're maintaining the position 
and have proof that they attended these classes. Hannah Williams is a former nurse, now attorney, who owns a law firm in Atlanta. She's representing several healthcare professionals facing these licensing complaints. Did they go through the clinical work? My clients went to various schools within the Operation Nightingale investigation. As it's been already reported, those schools did operate legitimately and they did have approval status through their agencies in their states. Do you think that they were targeted uh, based on maybe their immigration status or them not knowing um, you know, how we move here in the United States? So my clients are hardworking, compassionate immigrants from Black countries who came to this country for a better life with dreams of practicing nursing. Was there obviously are some people who purchased transcripts as part of the Operation Nightingale, but we also know that there were nurses who are legitimate and went to those schools legitimately. Oh, we don't know how, but it's seemingly that they are being lumped together with the nurses who are fraudulent. And so what I have been tasked to do and what I am going to do is defend my clients because they are legitimate and try to work with the state to show that they did receive their education legitimately. The Georgia Board of Nursing and a number of states have sent letters to nurses asking them to voluntarily surrender their licenses. But William says that her clients will not be doing that. She's going to wait on the state of Georgia to act and see what comes out of their investigation. It's also important to note that many states are handling this differently, but many of them are denouncing the purchase of fake degrees. Now, investigators say that they do not plan on charging any of these nurses, but they do say there is no no evidence that suggests that anybody was harmed under these nurses' care. For TSR Investigates, I'm Justin Carter. Not only are there full impersonators, but even our aspiring legitimate doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and faculty members at higher institutions have been found to pad their resumes and CVs to enhance their competitive advantage to win postgraduate training spots. Dr. Fromovitz's study at MD Anderson found a significant number of candidates without verifiable publications. Dr. Ola Slager's team reviewed two years worth of applications to a residency program in obstetrics and gynecology and found numerous missing studies, and many were stated to be peer reviewed that were not. Even in higher education, professors have been found to be missing key credentials. This is happening to him, it's still a shock to me. You may have heard about people lying about their education, but new at six, what this college professor is accused of doing actually landed him in jail. Good evening, I'm Brenda McLaughlin. And I'm Wendy Ryan. Thanks for joining us. Tonight, a Bay Area professor is behind bars, charged with grand theft and cheating. Well, it turns out he never earned the doctor in his title, and it took five years for the school to figure it out. All new at 6, our Ryan Ray, she is live at Polk State College with what he's learning about this instructor. Ryan? Yeah, Wendy, for the last five years, David Broxman worked here at the Lakeland campus of Polk State College. Students we talked to called him strict, professional, and by the book, or so it seemed. He was a phenomenal teacher. High praise for the man students knew as the military guy, Dr. David Broxterman, a well-respected professor at Polk State College, now accused of being a fraud. It's just a shock that this man who taught me so much and has done so much for the school is not who he says he is. 
Broxterman, seen here in a military uniform from his Facebook page, got the job at Polk State College in 2009. He claimed he just earned his Ph.D. in business from the USF and had the diplomas to prove it. But take a close look. In one spot, board is spelled wrong. And if you compare President Judy Genshaft's signature to a real diploma, it's totally different. It's a shame that somebody really has to lie about how many degrees they have or what they've done. State attorney investigators arrested Broxterman this morning on charges of grand theft for defrauding the college of his quarter million dollar earnings since he started. Fake or not, students raved about him on the website ratemyprofessor.com. Anthony Bates aspired to be just like him. Every class he started the same way as he would have the class stand up in attention and present to us the way things were done in the military. Today we also learned this may not be Broxterman's first lie. A West Palm Beach coin collector is suing Broxterman for selling him a coin collection he claimed was worth a million bucks and turned out to be fake. Students don't know what to believe. The fact that this is happening to him, it's still a shock to me. The video on credentialing of caregivers produced by the AMA is helpful to our consumer non-medical audience. Commercial academic fraud is a global and multi-billion dollar industry supporting expert impersonation and publication fraud with enormous and growing energy and scale. It is an invisible threat to everyone. An excellent Forbes article published February 21st, 2023, entitled How Thousands of Nurses Got Licensed with Fake Degrees by Emma Whitford and Janet Novak provides a terrific summary of the nursing diploma scandal that has rocked healthcare and is causing ripples through all of our higher education institutions. In January of 2023, criminal conspiracy and wire fraud charges were brought against 25 individuals involved in the sale of 7,600 counterfeit diplomas from three defunct nursing schools in Southern Florida. The scheme generated $114 million. These fake certificates allowed untrained individuals to take the National Nursing Board exams, and shockingly, around 2,800 of them passed. Consequently, fake nurses have infiltrated various healthcare settings, including nursing homes in Texas, an assisted living facility in New Jersey, a New York agency providing care for homebound pediatric patients, and the Department of Veterans Administration Affairs had to remove 89 nurses with phony degrees from direct patient care. The investigation was known as Operation Nightingale. The impact of this scandal prompted state licensing boards to take action. Delaware revoked 26 licenses of working nurses, Georgia requested 22 nurses to surrender their licenses. Washington State initiated investigations into 150 applicants suspected of holding fraudulent credentials. The prevalence of fraudulent degree claims has been a growing concern highlighted by recent incidents such as the Republican Congressman George Santos' false claims. And the increasing ease of cheating one's way into legitimate degrees that can be assisted by artificial intelligence applications such as ChatGPT. The Forbes authors address how the issue of phony degree mills in education has gained attention through a new scholarly book entitled Fake Degrees and Fraudulent Credentials in Higher Education. The book, edited by three Canadian academics, argues that fake degrees deserve more attention from academic integrity scholars 
as they are just as significant as other forms of academic fraud like cheating and plagiarism. The lack of scholarly research on degree mills led the editors to seek insights from Alan Azell, an 81-year-old retired FBI agent with extensive experience in investigating diploma mills. Azell estimated that phony degree mills generate billions in annual sales worldwide, with a significant proportion of the market located in the United States and the Middle East, particularly in the Gulf region. This exponential growth from $1 billion in 2004 is attributed to factors such as the Internet's influence, the push for online adult education, and the shift to online classes during the COVID-19 pandemic. The United States is particularly vulnerable due to its emphasis on educational degrees, decentralized accreditation system, and relatively free market in education, and thus it has long been a hub for fake diplomas. Sarah Eaton, an academic integrity expert and one of the book's authors, expressed concern about the lack of effort from governments in shutting down diploma mills and the negligence of hiring managers, including those within universities, in verifying applicants' credentials. The absence of explicit laws against advertising, issuing, or holding fake degrees in the United States contributes to the difficulty of cracking down on diploma mills. Eaton suggests that employers consult reputable education agencies such as the Department of Education, which maintains a list of accredited colleges and universities. Azell commends Oregon for its Office of Degree Authorization, the ODA, which protects students, employers, and licensing boards by compiling information on accredited programs and evaluating transcripts from unaccredited institutions. The book by Eaton, Carmichael, and Petrick emphasizes the need for legislative fixes to address the issue of fake degrees. Questioning why there isn't a law against holding a fake degree when there is one against holding a fake passport. The Forbes article highlights Azell's experience in investigating diploma mills, particularly his work on Operation Diploma Scam, known as DIP Scam. During his tenure, Azell's team dismantled numerous diploma mills, leading to many convictions and shedding light on the audacity of the businesses involved. Notably, Exact, a Pakistan-based diploma mill gained infamy as the largest and most notorious operation Azell encountered. Despite being exposed by a New York Times investigation in 2015 and facing criminal convictions, Exact continues to operate under various school names and websites, trapping individuals seeking legitimate degrees and allowing victims to be susceptible to extortion. The case of fake nursing degrees serves as evidence that the diploma mill issue extends far beyond Florida. The investigation began in 2019 when the FBI received a tip about two individuals producing counterfeit transcripts and nursing certificates from a for-profit nursing school in Northern Virginia. The scheme involved backdating the documents to a period before the school lost its license. Patrick Nowaku, a Maryland resident, and Johanna Napoleon, a Florida mill operator, collaborated in selling certificates and transcripts from the Palm Beach School of Nursing, which had been shut down due to low pass rates. The operation charged additional fees for services such as completing required courses online. Napoleon, who had admitted to obtaining millions of dollars from the sale of fake nursing documents, awaits sentencing as she cooperates with the ongoing investigation. 
The case highlights the vulnerability caused by fragmented licensing and accreditation systems in the United States, as graduates from one state's for-profit schools may be licensed in another state. The investigation revealed that Maryland had licensed 111 graduates from the Virginia mill before implementing stricter fraud controls in 2018. In conclusion, the prevalence of fake degrees and fraudulent diploma mills presents a significant problem in education. The lack of comprehensive legislation and insufficient verification practices by hiring managers exacerbate the issue. Efforts to combat diploma mills and ensure the authenticity of degrees remains challenging due to the constantly evolving nature of these fraudulent operations. A review of more of the comments of Sarah Eaton and Jamie Carmichael provide more texture to the fake diploma and credential issues. They're found in web-based interviews about their book and research. So why should higher education leaders and faculty focus on fake degrees and credential fraud? In the words of Sarah Eaton, quotes, this industry is worth 21 billion U.S. dollars per year. That's the dollar figure amount that most people in higher education are unaware of. So starting with that and understanding how the industry works and impact it has is key. Quotes, imagine you need surgery and later find your surgeon has a fake degree. It happens. Fake degrees are not a victimless crime and can have direct negative impact on the public. Before the pandemic, we were talking about academic integrity and wondered why people aren't talking about this. So we decided to dive in and make this book. Jamie Carmichael expanded on Sarah Eaton's answers when she described the results of a survey they undertook spanning Canada from coast to coast to get the pulse on the magnitude of the problem. Quotes, we found out that 60% of individuals didn't feel like fake degrees were a problem. So there's lack of concern. An international survey for the Council of Higher Education Accreditation's International Quality Group had similar results, unquotes. She went on to say, citing their book, quotes, but there are plenty of examples out there, even in the media, and the Orem and Glendening 2003 chapter details many such cases. There's bribery of admission officials, leaked exam papers, sexual harassment, impersonation, suspect marketing, education agents, and inhumane use of technology. So it does exist, and it needs to be a concern, unquotes. There is yet to be a clear definition of what a fake degree or fake credentials are. However, in their excellent work entitled The Ecosystem of Commercial Academic Fraud, Eaton and Carmichael provide an excellent organizational structure through which commercially supported fraud can be described. They define degree mills as services that generate fake and fraudulent diplomas, transcripts, reference letters, and other academic and professional documents. And they define contract cheating as outsourced student academic work, including term paper mills, assignment completion services, thesis writing services, and student proxy services. Paper mills are defined as manufactured scholarly and scientific publications, authorship for sale. Finally, admissions fraud they define as impersonation and fraud services for standardized admissions testing. An example are SATs, language proficiency testing, and unethical agents. We've covered the example of degree mills and how they're impacting nursing and thus patient safety. When we consider contract cheating and paper mills in the area of healthcare and higher education, we must consider predatory journals. An article in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings caught our attention with the title, The Problem of Publication Pollution, Denialism, 
by Arthur Kaplan, who described a huge threat, quotes, pollution of science and medicine by plagiarism, fraud, and predatory publishing, he warned if the medical and scientific communities continue to remain in publication pollution denial, the trustworthiness, utility, and value of science and medicine will be irreparably damaged. To illustrate this point, he used the example of the published article entitled Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, the surgical and neoplastic role of cacao extract in breakfast cereals. The author, Mark Schreim, was then a graduate student at Harvard University and is now the chair of global surgery at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Prior to the advent of artificial intelligence, such as ChatGPT, he used a random text generator to create a gibberish paper entitled, quotes, cuckoo for cocoa puffs, unquotes. It was absolute gibberish with no paragraph making sense at all. The entire text had no coherence other than being comprised of complete sentences. He submitted the paper, whose authors were listed as Pinkerton LeBrain and Orson Welles, to 37 medical journals. It was accepted by 17 of them. One publication said its methods are, quotes, novel and innovative, unquotes. But when Schreim looked up the physical locations of these publications, he discovered that many had very suspicious addresses. One was actually inside a strip club. As was stated in a Fast Company article, many of these publications sound legitimate. To someone who's not well-versed in a particular subfield of medicine, a journalist, for instance, it would be easy to mistake them for valid sources. Quotes, as scientists, we're aware of the top-tier journals in our specific subfield. But even we cannot always pinpoint if a journal in another field is real or not, unquotes. Quotes, for instance, the International Journal of Pediatric Otorhinolaryngology is the very first journal I was ever published in, and it's legitimate. But the Global Journal of Pediatric Otolaryngology is fake. Only someone in my field would know that, unquotes. As many of us do every day, he was receiving at least one request from an open access medical journal promising to publish his research for a fee. Quotes, you block one of them with your spam filter and immediately another one pops up. Shrine was worried that there might be bigger issues at stake. Quotes, what exactly are these journals publishing and who's taking these journals to be credible sources of medical information? Publication fraud is a long-standing and ever-growing threat that has both invisible and visible presence and impact. Basic research misconduct, known as, quotes, the cardinal sins, unquotes, of research conduct, falsification, fabrication, and plagiarism are the primary concerns in avoiding research misconduct. Any divergence from these norms undermines the integrity of research for that individual, lab, university, or corporation, and the field as a whole. Falsification. Falsification is the changing or omission of research results or data to support claims, hypotheses, or other data. Falsification can include the manipulation of research instrumentation, materials, or processes. Manipulation of images or representations in a manner that distorts the data or, quotes, reads too much between the lines, unquotes, can also be considered falsification. Fabrication. Fabrication is the construction and or addition of data, observations, or characterizations that never occurred in the gathering of data or running of experiments. 
Falsification can occur when, quotes, filling out, unquotes, the rest of experiment runs, for example. Claims about results need to be made on complete data sets, as is normally assumed, where claims made based on incomplete or assumed results is a form of fabrication. Plagiarism. Plagiarism is perhaps the most common form of research misconduct. Researchers must be aware to cite all sources and take very careful notes. Using or representing the work of others as your own work constitutes plagiarism, even if committed unintentionally. When reviewing privileged information, such as when reviewing grants or journal article manuscripts for peer review, researchers must recognize that what they are reading cannot be used for their own purposes because it cannot be cited until the work is published or publicly available. One of the most interesting examples of expert fraud and publication fraud is the story of William Hammond, an airline pilot who posed as an experienced cardiologist with a PhD who taught patient safety to medical practices. He had no MD, nor had he ever practiced medicine. Now we're going to go to that doctor imposter. A respected voice in the world of medicine has been exposed as a fake. William Hammond called himself a doctor and lectured some of the nation's leading cardiologists on patient safety, even though he never graduated from medical school. Sharon Alfonsi is here with more on how he fooled so many for so long and how he finally got caught. He finally got caught after years and years. It's really a story right out of the movies. Dr. Hammond was a cardiologist and a pilot, well-respected, until his story suddenly unraveled. He was, by all accounts, impressive. Dr. William Hammond, a commercial pilot and cardiologist who used his expertise in both to keep hearts and planes from crashing, lecturing and teaching at prestigious medical events around the country. Well, what we're doing uh, is taking uh, a concept that uh, was developed really in the airline industry. I'm actually a captain for United Airlines as really? well as a cardiologist. Oh, cool. But there was just one problem with Dr. Hammond's story. The AP learned the impressive Dr. Hammond wasn't really a doctor. And when he wanted to seek this grant, uh, they discovered he did not have an MD degree. And then when they checked further, it appeared he did not have a PhD degree either. In fact, AP found Hammond had no medical residency, fellowship, doctoral degree, or the 15 years of clinical experience he claimed. He attended medical school for a few years, but withdrew and didn't graduate. Doctors who worked alongside him are stunned. Never treated a patient, only lectured and taught, but they say he was completely convincing, walking the walk and talking the talk. Dr. Harris. Yes? Do you concur? But unlike the high-flying con man in Catch Me If You Can, Hammond really is a pilot, a captain at United with top credentials, although the airline has reportedly grounded him after learning of his deception. I could find no one that wasn't absolutely shocked, absolutely shocked. And for his part, Hammond declined to comment on the story, but his attorney told the AP he looks forward to clearing up the issue. And the amazing thing about this, all his colleagues say he was a really smart guy. They had no idea, he no idea at all. Can't wait to see how he clears it up. Exactly. Okay, Sharon. It'll be thanks. a movie. <laughs> as my first official duty as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Patient Safety, I had to retract an article co-authored by William Hammond. One of at least seven articles he co-authored, he falsely represented his academic credentials to granting agencies, healthcare organizations, and publications for 15 years. At the time of our retraction, only a portion of his articles had been retracted. Retraction Watch is a database that lists retracted 
and retractions or corrected or corrections of publications or publications with expressions of concern. A blog is connected to the database highlighting some of the retracted publications. Quotes, Retraction Watch has witnessed a retraction boom since its founding 12 years ago, but the scientific community must do much more, unquotes, according to their article in 2022. In 2010, Retraction Watch was averaging 45 retractions a month. In 2021, they were nearly 300 a month. The Retraction Watch database, launched in 2018, was up to nearly 35,000 entries in 2022. The use of the story of Scott Rubin, which was first reported on in 2008 and 2009, illustrates what can happen. Rubin, an anesthesiologist studying painkillers, was found to have faked data in clinical trials and eventually went to prison for charges related to scientific misconduct. 25 of his papers have been retracted, but in the decade after the story came to light, those papers were cited hundreds of times. Only 40% of those citations noted that the work was retracted. Stanford University's president is stepping down amid accusations has been going on for months that he failed to correct mistakes in scientific papers. Last year, the Stanford Daily Newspaper reported that Mark Tessier-Levine authored a 2009 medical study that contained false data. An investigation later found Tessier Levine did not engage in any fraud, but it did find serious flaws in the paper's data. Tessier Levine will be stepping down at the end of August, and he will be retracting at least three papers. A counterpoint to publication fraud is when honest researchers and writers are accused of misconduct, which builds on the successful model of the Innocence Project. We'll provide more information in future webinars addressing this issue. There certainly is a significant opportunity for academic healthcare and higher education institutions to provide better checks and balances to prevent fraud and unintentional errors having similar impact. Now for predatory business practices. The worst actors who are only too common fit the imposter fraud category as they use a position of power to financially take advantage of consumers. We start off by addressing two provocative books that address the predatory business practices of some, but not all, hospitals, caregivers, and insurance companies. We'll take a deeper dive into them in future programs. We then cover the enormously powerful impact of information by understanding the information disorder concepts of misinformation, malinformation, and disinformation. We then introduce trailers of three documentaries that address propaganda, social media, and the intentional impact on consumers. Well, you know, our entire broken healthcare system needs to be redesigned, and we cannot wait for the government to do it, and no legislation can fix it. But a lot of good stuff is happening. It's re being rebuilt by people that recognize we got to treat more diabetes with cooking classes than just insulin, and talking about school lunches instead of bariatric surgery, and treating back pain with ice and physical therapy more often than surgery and opioids. This is the revolution to change healthcare. It talks about food as medicine and dealing with the underlying things that bring people to care and also addresses pricing failures in the market. So your, your, your focus is more on root concerns rather than things like 
I don't know, open up a competition across borders for insurance companies and maybe put a cap on on uh, tort reform or as far as, uh, you know, settlements with uh, medical malpractice and things like that? Yeah, those are all things around the edges and those are issues, but we're not dealing with the core issue. And the issue is we cannot have doctors and nurses on a treadmill where they're in charge of throughput and billing and coding and that hospitals send outrageous bills only then to shake people down or discount them to selective insurance companies. That system is broken. People want honesty and they want good health care with fair prices. And that's the revolution now that's being disrupted with new marketplaces. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Bricker, and thank you for watching A Healthcare Z. Today's topic is Marshall Allen's new book, Never Pay the First Bill. Is that look, when it comes to billing, insurance companies and hospitals and other providers, whether it be an imaging center or an ambulatory surgery center, look, they are bullies. They are going to bully you and me around. And if we are passive, Almost by definition, we will be exploited. So the expectation that I think Marshall Allen correctly paints here is that if you are passive and you just kind of go into the healthcare system and just do as you're told and pay what you're told to pay, you're going to be exploited. So the only way to stop the bullying and to stop the exploitation is to push back. And this book specifically says when and how and where and why to push back. So if you're a healthcare consumer or if you're an employer that wants to educate your employees about how to push back against this bullying, then this book is like the textbook on how to do that. We recommend these books to provoke thought and possibly change behavior. We're now in a new age of fake news, imposter websites, and where it's very hard to determine the truth. Thus, the term information disorder was coined. First draft, a nonprofit coalition was founded in 2015 by nine partners. They joined the Shorenstein Center for Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, and ultimately the work moved to Brown University. The group provides a very functional structure of information disorder definitions, where misinformation is inaccurate, but spread without the intention of harm. Malinformation may be accurate, however spread is undertaken with the intent to do harm, and the most dangerous, disinformation, which is both inaccurate and intended to do harm. It is through information disorder that our scientific foundations are truly being challenged and eroded. The following three documentary trailers provide a few highlights of the impact of information disorder. Communication is about sales. Keep it simple. People will fill in the blank with their own, I hate to say biases, but with their own perspective in many cases. The tobacco companies knew nicotine was an addictive drug, yet they told Congress, I believe nicotine is not addictive. You see the same small group of people that the tobacco industry used working on all kinds of other issues. Dioxins, pesticides, chemicals in general, I mean, there's no evidence 
that these are harming us. Scientists will explain the science. Against the scientists, they will have a so-called expert. Seven-week-old baby was in a crib. I literally heard a gasp when he told the story about this baby. Either one of you paid to testify for your time here in opposition to the bill? Citizens for fire safety. Citizens for fire safety, the three largest makers of flame retardants in the world. These so-called experts turn out to be very, very good at it. I'm not a scientist, although I do play one on TV occasionally. Uh, okay, hell, more than occasionally. <laughs> it creates a whole new cast of characters, these people who become well-known for casting doubt on global warming. Catastrophic global warming is a hoax. There's no scientific consensus. You go up against a scientist, most of them are very hard to understand and very boring. It's all about preventing you from looking where the action really is, which is in the science. The Earth is getting warmer, no question about it. It's kind of an amazing accomplishment. Such a small group of people have had an enormous impact on public opinion. We're the negative force. We're just trying to stop stuff. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident, that's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest. Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. I think we were naive about the flip side of that coin. We get rewarded by parts, likes, thumbs up. And we conflate that with value, and we conflate it with truth. A whole generation is more anxious, more depressed. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Facebook discovered that they were able to affect real-world behavior and emotions without ever triggering the user's awareness. They are completely clueless. <laughs> Fake news spreads six times faster than true news. We're being bombarded with rumors. If everyone's entitled to their own facts, there's really no need for people to come together. In fact, there's really no need for people to interact. We have less control over who we are and what we really believe. If you want to control the population of your country, there has never been a tool as effective as Facebook. We built these things and we have a responsibility to change it. The intention could be, how do we make the world better? If technology creates mass chaos, loneliness, more polarization, more election hacking, more inability to focus on the real issues, we're toast. This is checkmate on humanity.
has seen an advertisement that has convinced you that your microphone is listening to your conversations? All of your interactions, your credit card swipes, web searches, locations, likes, they're all collected in real time into a trillion dollar a year industry. The real game changer was Cambridge Analytica. They'd worked for the Trump campaign and for the Brexit campaign. They started using information warfare. Cambridge Analytica claimed to have 5,000 data points on every American voter. I started tracking down all these Cambridge Analytica ex-employees. Someone else that you should be calling to the committee is Brittany Kaiser. Brittany Kaiser, once a key player inside Cambridge Analytica, casting herself as a whistleblower. The reason why Google and Facebook are the most powerful companies in the world is because last year data surpassed oil in value. Data is the most valuable asset on Earth. We targeted those whose minds we thought we could change until they saw the world the way we wanted them to. I do know that their targeting tool was considered a weapon. There is a possibility that the American public have been experimented on. This is becoming a criminal matter. When people see the extent of the surveillance, I think they're going to be shocked. And I still fear for your life. Yeah. With the powerful people that are involved. But I can't keep quiet just because it'll make powerful people I, I, mad. I, I, I... Data rights should be considered just fundamental rights. This is about the integrity of our democracy. These platforms which were created to connect us have now been weaponized. It's impossible to know what is what. Because nothing is what it seems. Now, as we close this introductory program on imposters, we need to loop back to our objectives. Ted, we certainly have learned a lot preparing this program for you. The fact set is stunning. All of the visible and invisible threats are growing. Hart, we hope we've generated concern, hope, and real motivation through the stories we found. Hands, we believe that we all need to start with our core values to drive the new behaviors we need to adopt and the actions we need to take. Voice, we need to share with those we can influence to get into the fight against failure to rescue. In future programs, we'll drill down in detail on the four A's of focus and the five R's of safety to put real granularity to the actions we can undertake. For those leading medical and higher education organizations, we'll share the advice of Ann Rhodes from one of our recent programs who we've learned so much from and worked with over the years. Start with your core values as a blueprint. Trust, speed, integrity, cost, quality, and communication are intrinsically interlocked and tightly coupled. They define the business laws of gravity. The unspoken and real operational values in force will either hold them together or blow them apart. In our article, Values Genetics, published 16 years ago, citing members of our current team, we use the metaphor of core values as genes and behaviors as traits, their expression. Enron had great stated core values, but it was the unspoken rules and real operating values driving employee behaviors that killed it. 
are terrific HR team members who have led the value-centered success at Southwest Airlines, co-founded JetBlue, and worked with us to turn around higher education and medical centers and universities in four states, have taught us a great lesson. Leaders drive the values of the organization, which drive the behaviors of the organization, which ultimately determines the performance. The collective behaviors define the culture of the organization. For years, business leaders have said, culture is the way we do things around here, good or bad. In the words of Ann Rhodes, our HR team lead, protect your A players, develop your B players into A players, and remove the C players. Now for comments from our leading experts in threat safety science. Dr. Boats and Chief Adcox are subject matter experts in safety and have been great contributors to our MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. Gregory Boats is a professor of critical care medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's also an adjunct clinical professor of anesthesiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. He inspired initial focus of our team on active shooter events, and it was his continuous inspiration that led to the development of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. Along with Chief Adcox, he is a recipient of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award. He is also the medical director of the University of Texas Police Department at Houston. Dr. Boats, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Um, expert impersonation, your thoughts? Well, who would have thought that expert impersonation would be a topic that we had to discuss about a threat to our healthcare system and especially patient safety? But it happens. It happens uh, across the spectrum of healthcare providers. And it's particularly worrisome because our processes for both validating and uh, examining credentials for people that want to enter our healthcare institutions is overloaded and perhaps imperfect. And also our process for maintaining uh, validation of competency for providers is also overstretched and perhaps imperfect. And we can see many examples where there is a discovery uh, late in the process where someone may have falsified their credentials or may have overstated their credentials or their capabilities. Um, that's significantly uh, dangerous for our healthcare system because our patients are the ultimate victims. What about commercial academic fraud? I know we've been just really stunned by the scale of this business uh, around the world. Uh, it has exploded recently, especially with the advent of a transition to an electronic uh, form for um, our literature and our work product. Um, I get on average, three solicitations a week from journals that I've never heard of who would like me to publish. And I'm very concerned that they will use that relationship to either ghostwrite or to, uh, uh, to amplify their product uh, at my expense. And then publication fraud, it's shocking how many falsified fabricated and plagiarized documents are in the system that never get retracted? Well, it's amazing because during my early career, I looked to liter the literature um, closely for information about how to uh, understand a pathophysiology and how to approach our patient management. Uh, more recently, you've seen a number of retractions of articles that uh, when you look at it, look like it's really 
good data that you can use to make decisions. But with further examination, you can see that perhaps it's been fraudulently published, either with tampering with data or overstating the results. And most clinicians are not spending the time to critically review the literature for accuracy and methodology. Um, they're hoping that that's the process that's done on the front end by the review process. Um, I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with that anymore. I'm, I'm a little bit more um, cautious in using data from studies that I see, especially if they're in a journal that I don't recognize or whose review process I'm not familiar with. Predatory business practices is also exploding. Your thoughts from the front line? If you follow the money, uh, these groups are going for opportunities to exploit the healthcare system for their benefit. And these predators are using every avenue available, especially with the ease at which they can contact people these days or get into an area where clinicians or healthcare administrators may do their work. Um, ransomware is a huge problem. Um, predatory uh, processes with healthcare insurance on both the healthcare provider side and on the patient side is just a tremendous drain on our resources. Thank you so much. Uh, one of the questions that uh, you and I have discussed is whether the credential verification, meaning the competency checks of our caregivers uh, um, are working. Are the systems working that help us make sure that people are live up to their credentials and live up to what they say they know how to do? Well, I think there are well-intentioned processes in place in institutions to try to do credentialing as best they can, um, but I think they're flawed. I think uh, the systems are both overwhelmed with applicants with a variety of backgrounds, and the verification of those credentials is sometimes very difficult. And it's quite easy to falsify those documents uh, at times, uh, especially since there are so many groups that are willing to print fraudulent diplomas or certificates of competency from other institutions. Um, I often get asked to provide a reference for either physicians or nurses who are applying for privileges at other institutions after I've worked with them in our institution. And I will tell you the questions that they ask aren't probing at the right things, I think. And I think there's also a bit of reluctance on the part of the person who's providing that information to give any negative feedback for fear of litigation. So yes, the, the process is flawed and there's a lot more that we could do to try to uh, validate the credentials and the competence of our healthcare providers before they see our patients. Well, thank you, Dr. Boats. As always, you uh, provide some terrific insights from the front line. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Chief Bill Adcox is a national leader in threat safety solutions development and threat safety science. Without his mentorship, there'd be no MedTAC program as it exists today. His continuous support of the MedTAC team is substantial, and he's a key contributor on national education programs and R&D with healthcare and university leaders. He is the Chief Security Officer and Associate Vice President at the MD Anderson Cancer Center and Chief of Police of the University of Texas Police Department at Houston. Bill, thank you very much for taking time today with us. Um, first question is, 
why is it so important with these emerging threats to have cross-functional multidisciplinary teams working on uh, these areas, especially an insider threat? Well, that's a good question, Dr. Denneman. I, I have to tell you that we're pretty much utilizing that concept of multidisciplinary cross-functional teams in virtually any uh, of the work that we're doing now, particularly when it comes to workplace violence prevention, it, it comes to our insider threat programs. What we have found is, is that it takes, it takes an entire organization uh, that's sharing information, utilizing those resources and expertises in each of those areas uh, to, have a, to have a successful program. Uh, for example, right now, when we're talking about imposters, this technology has gotten to be so sophisticated and the ability to move so fast, you really need the different people, the different expertise. I believe that it. I, I believe that it was. Um, uh, there was a there was a study that was that was posted here a month or two ago, where the the Chat GPT, the popular AI Chat GPT, uh, uh, bot. It actually completed the Massachusetts Institute of Technology undergraduate curriculum in math, computer science, and electrical engineering with 100% accuracy. So if you just think about something like that, just as a component, so you have to have people from all types of different areas, cross-functional, multidisciplinary, bringing their tools, bringing their insights, bringing their systems to play and integrating that and having, having a, an ability to bring all that information together and then to be able to analyze it. And so, yes, that's, it's very critical because this imposter issue is becoming much more sophisticated and it's involving most multiple industries and multiple approaches. Well, Bill, one of the things you and your team have done an extraordinary job at helping us understand is why it's so important to have a collaborative relationship with local law enforcement. Do you want to hit that topic? Uh, yes, I will. Uh, we, we were very fortunate. We have a very uh, sophisticated uh, police operation, state police operation, as part of our institution, as a state institution, most or many do not have that. But at any rate, even in our own case, you have to have a close working relationship with not just your local law enforcement, law enforcement of record, but you need to have it with both your local law enforcement, with your federal law enforcement, particularly the, the FBI, uh, Secret Service, uh, others that are out there. You have to have a relationship with other services that may not be just particularly pure law enforcement. So, so that you can have all the different expertise and the different uh, levels of regulations and authority coming in to assist you as you're working through these cases. Because you might have a case yourself, and it's not going to be limited to your institution. There might be a, a major deal like there was down in, I believe it was, they found it down in Florida, where there was something like 7,000 uh, uh, false or fake diplomas for a nursing program. So it's going to be something that you need to bring a lot of people together so that you can get insight. And through those resources, you can. And the last thing I would say about that is this, a lot of these imposters um, activities and the things that they do are, are in itself a crime. And when you, when, if it becomes a crime, there are tools that law enforcement can bring to bear working with the prosecuting authorities, whether it's, whether it's, the specialized data information and, uh, that, that no one else can, can access, whether it's uh, grand jury subpoenas to get additional information, all the way up to search warrants. So it is very important to bring those organizations together and so that you can have a holistic approach because you want to weed out imposters, but you also want to make sure that you're, that you're also not victimizing someone, that you're always taking care of, that, it's, that you're following the facts, not a theory. 
and that you're letting the facts drive whatever you're doing. And that's why you, you have this multi-disciplinary team because when you pull that information together and you give it to some professional individuals on that team that can do the analysis, then you're, you're being very careful that you're, you're doing the right thing. So yes, law enforcement can bring some tools to the table. There's a lot of things that can go on. There's a different lens that, that uh, law enforcement professionals see, just like our physicians see it through a different lens. Our administrators see it through a different lens, and, and certainly our human resource experts see it through a different lens. Bringing everybody together is critical if we're going to have any success in, in weeding out imposters. Well, Bill, thank you for being a national, in fact, even a global pathfinder for threat safety science. You've really been a great contributor. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate you doing this. Now we would like to have Jennifer Dingman close us with the voice of the patient and voice of the public. That was a very informative webinar. I've heard story after story, different hospitals that are having nurses who aren't really nurses, doctors who aren't really doctors, and people are dying over this. Patients are passing away. They fake their credentials and they get away with whatever. We all have to be vigilant and, and really learn how to protect the patient from these people who are out there pretending to be something that they're not. I thank all of our speakers for their great information today. Again, please share the recording of this webinar with your colleagues, families, and friends. God bless you all, and we'll see you next month. Thank you, Jennifer, again, for your steadfast support of families, caregivers, and educators. As we always say to our TMIT and MedTAC teams about failure to rescue, may we fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Everyone is a patient, and everyone can be a caregiver. For leaders of education, everyone is a student, and everyone can be a teacher. God bless you, and we'll see you next month.